what lovely and encouraging music we've heard this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, please open it to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Um, the text this morning is printed in the notes. Um, and with the time that we have left, we'll be looking at a prologue to Christmas. A prologue to Christmas. There's so many images that come to mind for Christmas. Um, the Christ child in the manger, in many pictures with a halo on his head, the shepherds, the angels, the star in the sky. Yet images need content. They need to be filled up with content. Images can be powerful things when they bring to mind the right content. And so my goal this morning as we look at this passage is to fill up some of these images, to try to answer the question, what does this mean? What are we to make of the birth of Jesus in a little town in Bethlehem? Um, so what? would be another way of asking the question. The reason the title is called A Prologue to Christmas is John's gospel begins with a prologue. Prologue literally meaning first word. Many books have prologues. It's, it's, a, it's a part of the book that introduces and sets up the rest of the book. And so as John is going to tell his gospel, and we need to keep in mind that there is only one gospel. The, the original title of the four gospels are according to John, according to Matthew, according to Luke, according to Mark. Um, it's not John's gospel. It's the gospel according to John. There's one gospel. As John gives his account of it, he sets up some information for us to keep in mind. Now let's just read the text First 18 verses of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he. Of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Lord God, as we look to this passage now. We just pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears, grant us understanding, help us to begin to grasp 
just what momentous work was done when your son came into the world for us. In Jesus' name, amen. What we're going to do this morning, and this is a big text, we're not even going to begin to deal with all of its fullness. I just want to look at three sections of it, make three observations, and then end with three questions. So we're going to look at three sections, um, and then three questions. The first section, the first five verses, is the word and creation. The word and creation. John begins his gospel by referring to Jesus as the word. It's a unique title. There's really no precedent in Scripture. Uh, the Scripture speaks of God's Word being powerful, God sending out His Word, but to be personified, to be identified with a being, this is altogether new. It's likely that John did this because he wrote last. He wrote his Gospel after the other Gospels. There's plenty of evidence to suggest he's well aware of them. And so as he handpicks his material, he's, he's filling in gaps. He's bringing to light things that the other Gospels didn't address. And he starts, rather than with a title that his readers might be familiar with, he starts with one that's meant to sort of shake us up a bit. What, what do you mean, the word? It's just the word logos. We get the English word logo from it. And so what we learn is that in the beginning was the word and we know that the word is Jesus, because if you look down to verse 14, the word became flesh, which is speaking of the incarnation, the birth of Jesus entering into this world. So we know this is the Lord Jesus whom we're speaking of. And, and, and in short, what I think John is getting at by calling Jesus the word is he is God's powerful self-expression. God's powerful self-expression in creation revelation and salvation. I mean, you could have introduced Jesus as so many other things. In the beginning was the wisdom. In the beginning was the power. It's the word. He's the expression, the speech, the, the revelation of God. When God wants to reveal himself to us, when he wants to relate to us, he does it through his word. Of course, this opening phrase also has echoes of the Genesis account. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning... God created, and here in the beginning was the Word. And so what we learn about the Word, first and foremost, is He is eternal. He is without beginning. Literally the Greek, in what was, by nature and character, beginning, the Word was already being. Past continuous action. And the constant is, no matter how far back you look, no matter how far back the camera goes in space and time, the Word is there already existing, already being. We, we speak of eternality. The word is eternal. This is what John draws attention to in verse 15 when he bears witness of Jesus. He says, this is he who comes after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. Jesus is greater than I am because he is pre-existing me. And so this word is, is not any part of the created order, but rather we go on to learn not only is he eternal, he is God. He was with God, and he was God. And this is a beautiful balance. You know, whoever this eternal being is, this word, you may be tempted, you would be likely to think, okay, is this God or is this someone alongside of God? And the answer is yes, he's both. He is God, and he is God's own fellow. Literally with, face to face. It implies relationship. 
And, and so Jesus is, and this is where the Christian doctrine of the Trinity comes to light. He is God of very God, and yet distinct from the Father. And for eternity past, the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit have been in a loving relationship. And so right out of the bat in this first verse, immense information is given about this word. He is God. He is eternal. And yet he is distinct from the Father. And then he's creator. It says in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And again, this gives us perhaps some more tie-in as to why John would refer to Jesus as the Word, because in the Genesis account of creation, what was the means by which God created all things? He spoke. See, from the first pages of Scripture, there's been a tremendous emphasis on the speech of God. It is powerful. God didn't cast a spell at creation. He didn't use a magic wand. He didn't perform a ritual. He simply spoke. And the nothing obeyed and became everything. And then we learned that just word of God, Jesus, was the one who was the agent of creation. And John is emphatic on this point. Notice that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's, that's covering all your bases, right? Um, that's covering all your bases. Jesus made everything, everything, everything. Every molecule in the universe was made by this word. This is, this is the information that fills up this picture of this baby in the manger. See, baby in a manger, not so intimidating. Baby in a manger, cute, cuddly, eternal God who made everything. That, that, that's, that's a different... It's a different story. He made everything, and then verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And again, this gets back to the notion of creation in the Genesis account, creating all the life on the earth, all the plants, all the animals, or even God saying, let there be light, and before the sun and the moon and stars, there is light. And what we're learning is this was Jesus. This was the Word. In him was life. The life was the light of men. A light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. And that's one of the beautiful things about light. Light dispels darkness. There's, there's not much of a fight. If you're in a dark room, you turn on a light, the darkness flees. Darkness never overpowers light. And so what we learn in this first section is that this word, this child in the manger, is the eternal God, distinct from the Father and yet God himself, the agent of all creation the agent of all life and light. And there's an important concept to get at here because authorship, being the author of something, bestows and grants authority. The English, they're cognate words. So if you have authored something, you have authority over it. And so if Jesus is the author of all life and all matter and all things, then that means he has authority over all things. And, and, and this is the part of the equation that our culture and the world um, has a hard time. Because again, that means this baby in the manger is Lord. That's, that baby in the manger makes the rules. That baby in the manger has all rights, all privileges. We are beholding to that baby in the manger. 
And this is the important information that John, before he even starts his gospel, says we have to understand. We have to fill up these images with this truth so that we know what we're looking at, so that we know what we're dealing with. So let's move on to our second section. John then interposes a section on John the Baptist. We won't deal with that at the moment. Jump down where this notion of light gets picked up again in verse 9. Here, the first section, we saw the word in creation. Now we're going to see the word and the world. And here's where Christmas and the incarnation gets first introduced. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. See, not only is Jesus the life source that made everything, not only is Jesus the light source, but as he comes into this world, he, he, he is God's revelation, and in that sense, he gives light. The thought being of understanding. Um, Psalm 119, your word is a light to my feet. It's that sense now that we're viewing Jesus as light. There's also a sense in John's gospel where light is seen as moral. We'll get to that in a moment. It's purity. It's holiness. Sin is seen as darkness. So the light was coming into the world. And then what was the response to the world? Now remember, this is the one who made the world. This is the one who authored all life in the world. And now he graciously, lovingly enters into the world. What will be the world's response? And we get this heart-breaking word. He was in the world... And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And we're just, if you keep reading John's gospel, it's not the world did not know him as in they didn't recognize him. The world rejected him. To prove this point even further, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And, and the concept is this, he's Lord of all creation. And so he's the Lord of the world. But more than that, in the Old Testament, God created a peculiar people. He called Abraham. He promised him a blessing. He promised him a land. He promised him a seed. And that seed, that descendant, is Christ, the Savior. And he makes out of Abraham a great nation. They are the people of Israel. He makes a covenant with them at Sinai with Moses and the Ten Commandments, surely these people will recognize their Messiah. Surely these people will not reject him. They will embrace him. And the heartbreak of heartbreaks is no. He came to his own people. And his own people did not receive him. And you got to ask, why? And at this point, it might make us feel better to think, well, they didn't receive him maybe because they didn't recognize him. Or because, you know, he was making some pretty lofty claims to be God and all. And that, that's pretty hard to accept. And so maybe it was an honest mistake. Well, if you have a Bible, turn over to John 3. That, that was not the reason. Make, make no mistake. The reason why the world, the reason why Israel, and the reason why you and I would ever reject Jesus is for one reason and one reason only. We'll read that in John 3, 19 and following, where this notion of darkness and light is picked up again in clearly moral categories. This is the judgment. Let's, let's even go back further to John three sixteen, probably the most familiar verse in the Bible. And we'll just read from 16 all the way to 21. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his unique son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then we get the verdict. We get the summary, the conclusion. This is the judgment. This is the verdict. This is the state of affairs. Light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So according to this passage, according to the Bible's account, why was Jesus rejected? And it wasn't because of the incredulity of his claims. There's one reason and one reason only. Jesus shines light on our sinfulness. He shines a light on our self-love, our selfishness, our self-righteousness, our judgmentalism, our pride, our envy. And if we're a people who love those things, and we're secretly ashamed of them, but we love those things, then we don't want the light shining on us. And so we'll try to avoid the light, and if need be, we will smash the light to get away from it. It's the picture of like cockroaches scurrying away from when the lights turn on. This is why Jesus was rejected. Make no mistake. Make no mistake. And this is why today he is still rejected. Israel was willing to receive Jesus as a prophet. In, in chapter 3, Nicodemus comes. Surely you were sent from God, he says, for no one can do the works you do unless God has sent him. He wasn't willing to receive Jesus as God, but he was willing to receive him as a prophet. Someone sent from God. In John 6, they want to make him king because he's working miracles. And the one thing Jesus never negotiates, the one thing he never gives any leeway on, is who he is and how he is to be received. So when the rich young ruler comes up to him and says, Good teacher, what thing must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, Why do you call me good? There's only one good. He is God. What he's saying is, Don't call me good unless you're calling me God. And so who Jesus is becomes a really big deal. Who he is. And go back to John chapter 1, the prologue. He came to his own people and did not receive him. Well, in a sense, they did receive him. I mean, if you read through the Gospels, he drew great crowds. Palm Sunday, they heralded him into Jerusalem. What does it mean they didn't receive him? What it means is at the end of the day, when Jesus had clearly communicated who he was, what he was about, and what he called for from his people, when, they, when that clicked, when they got it, th- this man is claiming to be God of very God. This man is claiming to be Lord of all. This man is calling for unconditional allegiance. He's calling to be the supreme authority. I mean, Jesus says some pretty hard things. Whoever doesn't hate his mother, brother, father, can't be my disciple. What he's saying is, I'm on the top of your list of allegiance. He has no place to be a pretty good guy, a nice moral teacher. When, when the Jews got that, when that clicked, they rejected him. And Jesus was unwilling to accept anything less. And that is why they rejected him. But then there's a word of hope here. Back in John 1, 
He says, but to all who did receive him, there were some, there was a remnant, and even today there are those who believed. Those who did receive him, he gave the right, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What he's saying is this, to those who did receive him, give him the proper reception. To those who believed in his name, they get the unspeakable blessing of being adopted into God's family. And he makes it clear, this gift, this adoption, this becoming a child of God is not something that's based upon genetics. It's not based on bloodline. It's not even ultimately based on something we do ourselves. It's based on God's gift. Even our faith is a gift of God. Ultimately, it rests upon the will of God. So here's a word of hope. So we've seen the word in creation. We've seen the word in the world and his rejection. And then there's this word of hope. There are some who respond in faith, receiving him. And now we get to the incarnation. Now we get to John's Christmas account. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word translated there, dwelt among us, literally is tabernacled, pitched his tent. In the Old Testament, one of the um, holidays that the Lord established for Israel was the Feast of Tabernacles, or tents. And what Israel was supposed to do was to, once a year, go out, pitch a tent, and not live in their houses for a week, but to rather live in the tent. And the point was to remind Israel that they had been slaves. They had been sojourners. They had been exiles. There were 40 years where they wandered around in the wilderness. Let them never forget that. And here John draws a further connection to this notion. It anticipates the Son of God leaving heaven, where he has eternal glory and honor, where the angels praise him, where he has uninterrupted and perfect fellowship and communion with the Father. And he enters into our world, and he's born in a lowly stable. He takes on flesh. And now for the first time, the Son of God can feel pain. Now for the first time, the Son of, Man, Son of God, who, who made all things, needs someone to change his diaper. He pitched his tent with us. He went outside of his comfortable abode and he dwelt in a difficult environment. And we learned that that's part of what the Feast of Booths was about, was to set up this picture. And he did this to identify with us. He did this because you've got to become like what you want to save. Men need a savior, so the Son of God became a man. He took on flesh. And that mystery is profound and deep. Back in verse 1, we find the word being. And amazingly, in verse 14, the word here becomes flesh. And in entering into our world and taking on flesh and humbling himself in the form of a servant, according to Philippians 3, there is a glory to be beheld. And John says, we have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is what exemplified Jesus' life and ministry, grace and truth. No one ever spoke like this man. 
the soldiers who were sent to arrest him returned saying, and we see his grace, we see his humility, we see his love and his kindness. But more importantly, John here is beginning a contrast between what Jesus brings and what Moses and the law previously brought. Um, in verse 15, he mentions John the Baptist again, but go to 16, he comes back to this, and he says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I, I think that's a poor translation. Um, literally, it's a grace replacing a grace. And, and, and that becomes clear when you read the next verse. For the law was given by Moses. There's a grace. There's the grace of the law. The character of God revealed. His requirements delineated. The law was given through Moses. That was a grace. But Jesus has brought a new and better grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus inaugurates, brings in the new covenant. God's people, Israel, entered into a covenant with him at Sinai. But the law that they received was unkeepable. It was, a, it was meant to reveal our inability on our own works, on our own merit, on our own righteousness to stand before God. And sadly, the Jews of Jesus' day had tweaked it enough that it became keepable. See, the point of the, the law was never to say, here's what you do to be right with me. The point was to say, here's what I require, and our response would be, I can't do that. I'm going to need some help. I'm going to need a Savior. I'm going to need forgiveness, because I cannot do that. So there's a grace through the law of Moses, but the grace and truth par excellence comes through Jesus Christ as he brings in the new covenant, as he brings salvation to his people. And then in a further comparison with Moses, he says this, For no one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. At this point, I'd like you to turn, if you have a Bible, to Exodus 33. Quickly. Because what John is doing is he's drawing parallels to the giving of the law at Sinai, to what Jesus has done. If you remember, the first time Moses goes up in the mountain, he receives the Ten Commandments, he goes down, the people are committing mass idolatry, worshiping a golden calf, and he smashes them, breaking the Ten Commandments all at once. And he goes back up again, and God threatens to destroy Israel, and Moses intercedes for them. And the Lord listens to a righteous intercessor, and he relents. And then in, in chapter 33, Moses, at the end of this, in verse 18 says, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name to you, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there's a small place for me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by and then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face you shall not see and that's what John's getting at no one has ever seen God at any time even Moses who had the most closest approach to the living God in the entire Old Testament God says, I speak to him face to face. He goes up on a mountain that shakes. The encounter that Moses has with the living God is so powerful, his face is 
glowing for days afterwards. Even Moses cannot see God face to face. So Moses brought a grace, and it was a good thing. But Jesus has brought us another grace because what was previously impossible to approach God directly, to stand before him and not be consumed, John amazingly tells us that in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Literally, he has translated him or exposited him. And again, this gets back to the notion of Jesus as the word, God's powerful self-expression. You remember when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, who is there with him but Elijah and Moses? You see, God answered Moses' request. It just took a couple thousand years. Show me your glory. Okay, Moses, when Jesus pulls back the blinds and is glorified, you can be there and see that. But until then, no, you can't look on me face to face. And so the amazingness of the glory that Jesus brings is this, that through him, God can be approached. Through him and his death on the cross, we can stand before God. The the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 can say, we can boldly approach the throne of God. Let us not take that for granted. This is an altogether new grace, a new blessing, a new covenant. So that brings us to our three questions then. What does this mean for Christmas? What it means for Christmas is the baby in the manger, the cute, cuddly child with you know, chubby cheeks. Let us never forget who he is. Let us never forget he is the eternal God, the creator of all things. Um, it, it, the baby in the manger is, is something we can handle, something we feel comfortable with until we start to remember who that baby is. The uh, very popular Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know, the final verse does a good job of capturing this truth when it says, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? The sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. That's, I think, the first so what as you, as you engage in your Christmas traditions, as you behold the different images of Christmas, remember who this baby is. Remember who you're dealing with. Secondly, what does this mean for the world? So what does this mean for Christmas? What does this mean for the world? Well, it means good news and bad news. The good news is God has kept his promise. The promise made to Abraham, the promise made to Eve thousands of years before that God would send a savior, that God would send a deliverer, that he would send a seed, a descendant who would make all things right. He's kept his promise. And that is good news. And he lived this perfect life. He resisted temptation. He offered himself up on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. He was raised on the third day. And through his blood, through his death and his life, we can be saved. That is good news. The bad news If this is what God has done, then there is no other way. If this is what God has done, then as we saw in John 3, to to not receive him is to be under judgment. If God procured such a glorious salvation, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The writer of Hebrews says. So there's good news. 
But now the, the stakes are even higher. There are not many ways to God. There are not many ways to salvation. There is one mediator between man and God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who says of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Which brings us finally to our third and final question. What does this mean for you and me? And that, of course, is the, the big question. What does this mean for you and me? And John's gospel not only contains a prologue, it contains an epilogue. We don't need to turn there, but he tells us why he wrote his gospel. And in chapter 20, he writes this. Now, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, but these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says, I collected these, this material and I wrote it down so that you might come to the conviction, that you might come to the belief that Jesus is the Son of God, deity, the Christ, the promised deliverer and Messiah, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's, that's in the prologue as well. I mean, why was John the Baptist sent according to verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1? He came to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And so now the question really for us is, what will we do with Jesus? What will we do with this baby in the manger? Will we like the world, will we like his people, not receive him? Or will we receive him? And, it, and I think that word receive takes a moment to unpack because it can be deceptive. Uh, the word receive in English and in Greek has a sort of passive and active sense. You can receive a package from the postman. He knocks on the door, here's your package. You receive it. Pretty passive. Doesn't involve much. But we know that's not what's being spoken of here. If that's all received meant, then the Jews received Jesus. No, the reception Jesus was looking for, and that's sort of the other sense of receive, is reception, like a wedding reception, or what type of reception did they give you? Jesus came to his own people as their God, as their Messiah, as the one of whom the scriptures foretold. And they would receive him as anything but that. They'd receive him as a mighty miracle worker. They would receive him as a great teacher. They would receive him as a king even. But they refused to receive him as God and as Lord. That, that, and as the one who exposed their sin, who called them to account, that they would not receive. And so that becomes the question for us. It's, it's easy to sort of chip away at Jesus and be left with something safe, comfortable, that we can receive. You know, Jesus, he loves me. He's a good guy. Died for me. That was really nice of him. And that's all true. It's just not true enough, is it? So the question for us is, will we receive him as who he is, as who John has declared him to be? Will we receive him as God? Will we receive him as creator? Will we receive him as the one who has authority over all things? Will we receive him as our sacrifice who died for us? Will we receive him as the Lord's Christ and Messiah? That's who Jesus is. And he's, God is, through him, offering to each one of us the right to become his child, to become adopted into his family, to have our sins forgiven and removed, to have a word of peace spoken to us. And it comes through faith in Jesus. But it's the Jesus who is, not the Jesus that we give a makeover to. That's why I'm emphasizing this point. Jesus isn't a magic word. The content that fills up that word, that picture, is what matters. 
Will you believe in the Jesus revealed in Scripture? Will you trust Him to be your Savior? Will you trust in Him to be your righteousness before a living God? Will you do what the Jews refuse to do? Or will you, like so many, receive a tame, watered-down Jesus who simply sort of stands there and says, you go get him. I love you. Which is true. It's just not true enough. That's, that's the question for you and for us. Will we receive him by faith? Or will we reject him? Or, or worse yet, give him a makeover? Receive him on our terms? Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just are so thankful for what you have done through your son, sending him for us, revealing yourself to us through him. And Lord, it's my prayer now that you would help us to grasp who he is, the, the, the claims to deity and authority, kingship, sinlessness that, that he makes are staggering and if they're true it changes everything Lord protect us from receiving a partial Jesus help us to receive the Jesus of scripture your son the eternal word of God and help us to believe and by believing have life in his name amen well thank you for joining us the Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.